Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Our vision is Jesus. And there's no one or nothing I like talking about more than Jesus. And so when we talk about vision, everything we talk about is all coming to the same end, and that is to lift up the name of Jesus in our region and beyond. And so uh, is there anyone else excited about that this morning? Yes. yes, that's good. We're excited about Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we planted a church. That's why we do what we do, because we want his name to be lifted high. And so today we're talking about this topic of vision. A couple of weeks ago at our two-year celebration, you may remember that we watched the vision video I posted it again on Facebook this week, and we're going to show it in the service next week. But we watched a a vision video that really came about after a whole lot of months of prayer and seeking God's face from the leadership of the church about what God had placed on our heart for the future of follow. And so if you remember the video, you'll remember we talked about um, that we believe we're going to be one church in three locations within the next 10 years. We talked about many people being discipled and transformed by the gospel. We talked about people being sent out into the mission field, whether it's local, uh, in Australia or overseas. We talked about new ministries and outreaches starting that will increase our impact even more significantly in our community. And the purpose of that video was really to give you a snapshot of what the potential could be in the future. And so it was basically saying, here we are by God's grace, and it's incredible where we are by God's grace. None of you were here in this room two years ago. And by God's grace, he's called a group of people together. We've seen some saved. We've seen many discipled. And we see a group of people that are passionate about Jesus. And then the vision video is really just taking us ahead into the future and saying what's happened by God's grace, this is what it could be by God's grace in the future. And so the idea is to paint a picture of what that could look like. This morning, you've sent a visual presentation of a potential church facility. And Fred and the team at Studio B have done a great job of painting a picture visually of what that building could look like in the future. And that's really exciting. Uh, Not because of the building, although the building's pretty cool, but because that facility is a stake in the ground here in Officer to, to demonstrate to our community that we're here to stay, that we believe that Jesus has placed us in this community and we're not some transient community that's going to be here one day and gone the next, but we're putting our roots down because we believe Jesus wants us to be in this community to lift up his name. And so the building is a great visual to our community and a resource to be used to show people that we're serious about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might think it's just a building. It's going to be a place of worship, a place of discipleship, and a place of mission. And you think, well, it's just a building. How can it do any of those things? Well, this morning I want to do a short experiment. And I want to ask a number of questions. And if you put your hand up, I want you to leave your hand up. The first question is this. Who here, hands up, who gave their life to Christ for the first time in a church building? Okay, leave your hand up. Who here has been discipled, whether it's through youth groups or programs or Bible studies, uh, in a church building? Put your hand up. Who here has encountered God through worship and through God's word in a church building? (laughs) Who here has met lifetime friends for the first time in a church building? Very good. You can put your hands down. Buildings don't change anyone, but what happens inside them can and does. As people come to gather and worship and to hear the gospel, God actually changes people's life. And I see a future building in Tivendale Road being like an epicenter. 
You know, in an earthquake, the epicenter happens, and that's where everything spreads out from there. I see a church building being like an epicenter. We might even call it the epicenter. Who knows? But I see it being like an epicenter where we gather together for worship, training, discipleship, mission. And as we gather together and as things happen within that building, it's going to reverberate into new regions as we plant churches. It's going to reverberate into our community as people hear the gospel and respond to Jesus. And it's going to reverberate throughout eternity as what happens in that building happens for the glory of God. And so we see it as being an epicenter, and we know it's going to take many sacrifices before we get there, but ultimately we believe what we're doing is an eternal investment, that what happens in that building and through that building will have eternal significance. And I think that's an incredibly exciting thing. And so today, you've seen a vision for the future in a couple of different ways. Now, I don't really see myself as a visionary person. I think by God's grace, I've sort of grown in that space in recent years. But what I do know about visionary people is this. That visionary people can inspire you. And visionary people can drive you nuts, depending on how you're wired. And so as we talk about vision today, there's going to be a group of people here that are going to go, yes, let's step out in faith. Let's believe that God can do all things. Let's believe that this community is going to be different because Follow Baptist Church is here. It's going to be transformed in so many ways. We can do this because we have a God who can do all things. And some people get really excited about that. But others of you here today think the visionaries can just be a bit naive and that we should perhaps be a bit more realistic, that you should get your head out of the clouds. But I want to ask you a question today. What better place to have your head than in the clouds when you're a follower of Jesus? We need to be heavenly minded. We need to believe that God can do all things and we need to be people of faith. And so we think vision is a really important thing because it gives us a glimpse of what the future could look like. Bill Heibel says, vision is a picture of the future that creates passion in people. And so as Christians, saved by the grace of God through Christ, living in the hope of his return, we should be the most optimistic and the most expectant people on this planet. Let me say that again. As Christians, because I'm not sure you got it the first time. As Christians, saved by the grace of God through Christ, living in the hope of his return in the future, we should be the most optimistic and expectant people on the planet. And so we need to be people of vision. Why? Because God's got great plans for our lives. He's got great plans for this church. He's got great plans for our community. We serve a God who created all things, who sustains all things, who can do all things. And so we should be people who seek him and live by faith because he's told us he can do immeasurably more than we could ever hope, dream or imagine according to his power at work within us. That's a great thing to understand. We need to be people of vision. Vision is important. And in this season of fasting and prayer at Follow, I pray that he'll continue to give us vision in every part of our lives. Today's Bible reading, we finally got there, is from 1 Kings chapter 18. And it's not typically a vision passage, but I think there are some helpful things in this story about Elijah as we consider vision for our lives. And so before we get to that, let me just give you some of the context of the story. Elijah was a prophet, and a prophet is someone who speaks the words of God. And so Elijah, speaking the word of God, goes to Ahab, the king of Israel, and he prophesies to him that there will be a drought in Samaria for the next few years except at his words. And so he he drops that bomb on the king and then he takes off and he leaves the king there. And so this drought starts. And in the third year when the drought and the resulting famine was severe, the Lord spoke to Elijah and he said, I want you to go back and present yourself to Ahab. 
who by this point in time was pretty angry about the whole thing because this guy had declared a drought and then he'd taken off and now it's been in the third year and he's pretty upset about it. But God says to Elijah, as you go back and present yourself to Ahab, I will send rain on the land. Now, Ahab was a shocking king. In fact, he was the worst king in the history of Israel up until that point. And he was married to a wicked woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel had been going about slaughtering all the prophets of God. And so you can see how wicked this couple were. At the start of chapter 18, because of the severity of the famine, Ahab, the king, sends his palace administrator, a guy by the name of Obadiah, out into the springs and the valleys to try and find grass to keep the horses and donkeys alive. Once again, this shows what kind of king he was. Uh, His people were starving to death, but he's more worried about the horses and the donkeys. So he sends out Obadiah to find grass in these places. Now, Obadiah goes out, and we know that from verse 3, that Obadiah was a good man, and he was also a devout believer in the Lord. And even though he was working in the palace with this wicked king and queen, behind the scenes, Obadiah was actually helping to protect God's prophets that the king and queen were trying to kill. So in verse 4 of chapter 18, we see that he took 50 prophets and he hid them in one cave, and then he took another 50 prophets and he hid them in another cave, and he went back and forth providing them with food and water. And I really love this. Here's a man uh, that Jezebel herself has put in a position, and she's trying to kill the prophets, and she's uh, employed him to work for her, and yet God is using Obadiah to serve him by protecting his prophets, the very ones that... Jezebel's trying to kill. It's a wonderful thing how God works. And so Obadiah is out and about. He's trying to find grass. And on the journey, he bumps into Elijah. And in verse 8, Elijah asks Obadiah to go and tell Ahab that he is here, that he's returned. Now, Obadiah was pretty reluctant about that. And he was pretty reluctant because Elijah was very unpopular with Ahab. And he knew that Elijah was led by God's spirit. So if he goes and tells the king that Elijah is coming and then the spirit of God leads him somewhere else and Elijah doesn't turn up, then it's going to be Obadiah that gets killed. But Elijah, in verse 15, gives him his word. He says, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. And so after a little persuasion, Obadiah goes and tells the king. Now you can imagine the tension of this encounter, these two men coming back together. Matthew Henry says in his commentary that this is a meeting with as bad a prophet, bad a king, sorry, as ever the world was plagued with, and as good a prophet as ever the church was blessed with. And so it sets the scene of a great story between good and evil. And so we picked it up in the reading today at verse 16 of chapter 18. I think there's some great things for us to learn from Elijah when it comes to vision. The first one is this, that Elijah was a man who stood on God's word. The one thing that hasn't changed over all the years is that in Elijah's day, the word of God was not popular. Fast forward to 2017 and guess what? The word of God is still not popular. People don't like God's word. Now in verse 16, we see that Ahab welcomes Elijah to this conversation with an accusation that he was the troubler of Israel. Now, all Elijah has done until this point is spoke the words of God. God gave him the words to speak. He spoke them. But now Ahab is saying that he's the troubler of Israel simply because he didn't like the words that Elijah spoke. And so it's Elijah's fault, apparently, that trouble had come upon the nation. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me to be the exact same accusation that's thrown towards Christians today, that we are the troublers in our society and in our communities. 
that we are the troublemakers, that we shouldn't be in schools, that we shouldn't have any influence in our government, we shouldn't share God's heart on issues like marriage or abortion because we're irrelevant, hypocritical, bigots, haters, hypocrites, whatever else is convenient at that particular time we get labelled with and and whatever accusation seems to come, um, people think it's going to stick and many people have the opinion that our voice, which is ultimately representing God, is to be disregarded because we believe in the words of an ancient superstitious book that has no bearing on today. Not only that, but we, like Elijah, find ourselves being incredibly outnumbered by those who don't believe in God or who are blatantly opposed to him. In verse 22, we see that Elijah is outnumbered 450 to 1. Now, as Christians, it hasn't always been that way, has it? Living in the Western world, I think ever since Constantine, uh, we found ourselves kind of at the centre of our society, where we've had a significant voice at the table, where many people grew up going to Sunday school or growing up coming to church, and and even if people didn't adopt a Christian worldview, the majority of people respected it. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, if you haven't, you've been living under a rock and it's probably time to come out from underneath the rock, Um, but if you have Uh, haven't noticed, you really need to start to notice that it's not like that anymore. We no longer live in a community where we're the majority. We are the minority in many different ways. And we're grossly outnumbered in our culture. The recent census shows a decrease in religious belief and an increase in no religion amongst people. And whether that's truly reflective or not, I'm not sure. But I would say it seems consistent to what we see, at least in our region, Because not only does there seem to be less Christians, but there also at the same time seems to be an increase in antagonism towards Christianity. I don't know if you heard about a recent uproar in Queensland. I read an article this week about it in The Australian. And it said that Queensland education officials have moved to ban references to Jesus in the primary school yard with an unofficial policy that takes aim at junior evangelists. Now, I don't know what a junior evangelist looks like. I've got a picture of this kind of little militant little guy with a hat on and a a big badge standing outside the canteen as people are getting their dim sins with soy sauce, uh, screaming through a megaphone, turn or burn. You know that? Is that what a junior evangelist is? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm pretty sure they're just talking about kids who are talking about what they're passionate about. And the reason that these junior evangelists need to be stamped out is also given in the article. Because this could adversely affect the school's ability to provide a safe, supportive and inclusive environment. Listen to the irony of that statement. We want a safe, inclusive environment where nobody is excluded except Christians. And so don't talk about Jesus. You can talk about your favourite football team. You can talk about politics. You can talk about your opinions on everything else. You can talk about... Um, any other figure throughout history, you can talk about Muhammad, Buddha, the Dalai Lama, and that's okay. You can even use Jesus as a swear word, but if you dare talk about your love for him, then you're going to be punished. It's as moronic as it is ironic. And I don't want to sort of start us getting a, a persecution complex because I think that would trivialize what many Christians are going through in other parts of the world. But I think it does show that God's word is not popular all welcome in many places and in many people, uh, even in Australia, and I think most people or or many people in our society see Christians as the problem. Ahab saw Elijah as the problem, and he said he is the troubler of Israel. But in verse 18, Elijah rightly points out that he's not the issue for Israel. He says, I have not made trouble for Israel, 
but you and your father's family have. Why? Because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. See, God's word wasn't the problem. The problem was that Ahab and his family failed to obey it. Clearly, as Christians, most of the time, we don't believe that we're the problem. We don't believe that God's word is the issue, but rather the failure to obey it. It's what the Bible calls sin. And I don't know if you've noticed, but most people don't want to talk about sin, particularly when it talks about their own sin. But what I love and what I think is important for us when it comes to vision is that even when Elijah is grossly outnumbered, he still boldly proclaims God's word. And that's a challenge for us. When there's pressure to conform to cultural trends that will change in five minutes, when there's pressure to abandon God's word, that in those times when that pressure comes, we would instead stand boldly proclaiming the word of God as truth, regardless of how unpopular it may be, and to do so even when we're outnumbered. Elijah put his faith in God's word. He trusted God's word. He stood on God's word. He proclaimed God's word. And no matter how outnumbered he was and what the consequences were, that was where he came back to, to God's word. When it comes to the future vision of follow, it's absolutely essential that we stand on the unshakable foundation of God's word because if we don't stand on something, we're going to fall for anything. And so we need to be people who stand on God's word. The second thing Elijah did is that he remembered who God is. Once again, with vision, that's incredibly important because when we think about vision for the future, it can feel big and it can feel scary and it can feel even at times overwhelming. But let me say this morning, it only feels that way when we forget who God is. When we look to the future, the obstacles can seem so big. How are we going to finance a building? That's a big obstacle. How are we going to plant churches? There's lots of big obstacles there. How are we going to reach a community that seems so broken and disinterested? Well, there's big obstacles in all of those things. And if we focus simply on what we can see, it may seem impossible because it just becomes too big. But how's this for a counteraction? There's nothing impossible with our God. And as we focus on the, the bigness of God, instead of the bigness of the obstacles, as we look to the bigness of God, what happens is the obstacles start to shrink. And what was a roadblock before now becomes a speed bump because God is bigger than anything that we'll ever face. And so we need to remember who God is. Elijah seemed to be facing what may have seemed like an impossible situation. His life was in danger. His people had forgotten who God is. And God had chosen him to declare his word to a rebellious people. Elijah found himself in a marketplace full of competing gods where even followers of God saw their faith as compatible with that of the Baals and other idols to the point where Elijah challenges them in verse 21 with the question, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God then follow him. Now the question is, who is Baal? Well, Baal was the god of the Canaanites, a false idol, but they believed that he controlled nature. And so when the Israelites first entered into the, the land of Canaan, they found fertile land. The land was so much fer more fertile than anything they'd ever seen before. They'd been wandering in the wilderness. Now they come into this land and it's just absolutely fertile. And the Canaanites attributed that fertility to this god of theirs, Baal. Now, this is where the problems began for the Israelites, because even though God had led them out of the wilderness, 
and it provided in so many supernatural ways, when they saw this land, they started to doubt that God could provide that kind of land for them. And so they thought, well, maybe it's safe to worship God and Baal. We'll have a little bit of God over here, and we'll have a little bit of Baal over here, and we'll have a little bit of other idols, and if we can sort of keep all those little gods happy, then perhaps we can manipulate him and twist his hand to get what we want to get. It's kind of like a bunch of puppets on a string. When I want this, I'll pull that string. And when I want that, I'll pull that string. And when I need this from God, I'll pull that string. And if I do all those things and keep all those gods happy, then I'll get what I want. Now, unfortunately, the worship of Baal, aside from being idolatry, was a pretty wicked um, you know, religious practice and it had pretty wicked things going on. Um, the adults would gather around the altar of Baal and they performed child sacrifices by burning them alive. And while that was happening around the altar, they would have sexual orgies with the men and women. It's something, um, it's probably more wicked than anything else you could ever imagine. All of this was meant to um, produce economic prosperity by prompting Baal to bring rain for the facility of Mother Earth. Now, Baal is portrayed as a man with the horns and the head of a bull, and his right hand, or sometimes both of his hands, are raised and he holds a lightning bolt. And so because these people believed that he was the god of lightning and fire and the storm and that he was responsible for fertility of the land. So Baal was always pictured on a throne depicting him as the lord over all other gods. And so this wicked king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, they're trying to get rid of the one true god and they're trying to make Baal the national deity in place of God. And so Elijah comes into the story and he challenges these people to prove once and for all which god is truly god. So if you look at verse 19, we'll pick it up there. He says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Interestingly, those ones never showed up. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between these two opinions? If Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the fire, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. This is the challenge, that whoever's God is going to provide fire to consume the sacrifice on the altar. Verse 24, then all the people said, what you say is good. In other words, challenge accepted. Let the battle begin. Now, fire in this passage is very significant for three reasons. First of all, fire is the indication of the presence of God. And so as you look through scripture, you'll see from the burning bush to the pillar of fire in the wilderness to the, the throne vision of Ezekiel and the fire there, we see that it represents God's presence. And so if the fire falls, it will represent that God is present for either one of these camps. The second reason that it's significant is because it's connected to the lightning of the storm god. Baal is depicted with lightning bolts in his hand and he's spoken of in ancient texts as flashing forth with fire or lightning. So this should be no problem for Baal. We're playing on his home turf, we're at his home ground, he's the fire god, and so if anyone's going to be able to provide fire, surely it's Baal. The third reason is this, that fire represents acceptance of the sacrifice. 
burnt offerings like this are usually part of a petition to God. And in this case, the petition is that the drought would end and that God, who could truly do that, would be revealed in this contest at Carmel. And the way it would be revealed is by fire. So in this passage, we see a competition of sorts. It's the equivalent, the ancient equivalent, of a title fight. The first ever pay-per-view between the great idol of Baal and the challenger Yahweh, the God of Israel, where the winner will be declared not by knockout, but by sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice on the altar. Now, for us with hindsight and an understanding of who God is, this seems like a mismatch, doesn't it? You've got this pathetic um, false idol of Baal coming up against the creator of the universe. It's a little bit like looking at Mike Tyson and then looking at me and then both of us stepping into a boxing ring, and you would probably think that's going to be a knockout in the first round. And you're dead right. I reckon that's all it would take for me to knock him out. And so you're <laughs> spot on. And so it seems like a mismatch, doesn't it? This almighty God versus this pathetic idol. And yet I think in their context, they probably saw it the complete opposite. You've got this apparent God of fire who apparently controlled nature. Even the prophets were outnumbering 450 to 1. There seems to be more support, more confidence, more worship, and more trust in Baal than there is in God. But in this story, Elijah remembers who God truly is. And so ding, 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 the bell rings. And in verse 26, the worshippers of Baal have the first go at it. And it's quite amusing to see what they're doing, to try and get from their God something that he's not capable of delivering. And so from morning to noon, this God of thunder and fire can't produce even a spark. He can't do the very thing he's renowned for. They call on his name, and hours after hours of this, Elijah steps forward, and he seems to be my kind of guy. He goes all Conor McGregor on them, and he starts to taunt them without the expletives, and he starts saying, come on, this is pathetic. You're meant to be calling out to a God who's a God of fire, and where is he? And Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's too busy. Maybe he has an RDO today. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's just slept in. You've got to wake him up. Come on. Wake up your God. And he's taunting these people. And so they take up the challenge. They start to yell even louder and they dance around. And I would dance if I could, but I can't. And they would dance around and they took swords and they start slashing themselves and the blood would start to flow. And they get into this kind of frenzy that they whip themselves up into to try and get God to do what they want him to do. But of course it doesn't work doesn't work at all. In verse 29, it says that by evening, there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now it was Elijah's turn to step forward and for God to have his shot. Elijah repaired the altar and then he gets the shovel out and he digs a trench all the way around it. He placed the sacrifice on it and three times he completely drenches the sacrifice with water until it fills the trench. That's not a good idea if you want fire, is it? And I think that's the exact point. It doesn't matter what happens here, there's no obstacle too big for God. And so Elijah, he steps forward. And unlike the other guys, there's no slashing himself, there's no whipping himself into a frenzy, but it's a chance for God to have his shot. He steps forward, he prays calmly and confidently. Verse 37, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell 
And it burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it also licked up all the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah remembered who God is. And when it comes to vision, this pretty much describes what our vision is. That as we lift up the name of Jesus, people will know that he is God and their hearts will turn to him, that they too will declare, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Seems a long shot, doesn't it? Seems like we're outnumbered. But we must remember who God is. Third and final thing is that Elijah heard and saw what others couldn't hear and see. Elijah stood on God's word. He proclaimed God's word, and what happened? God showed up according to his word. We can bank our lives on God's word. He is faithful to his word. And so we can bank our lives on the promises of God in Christ. And when God showed up, Elijah remembered who God is, and because he remembered who God is, he can now start to hear and see what others couldn't hear and see. Elijah had come to prove to Israel that God was the one true God and that only he could provide the rain. In the contest at Mount Carmel, he provided the fire, but the question remains, can he provide the rain? And so in the final part of the story, Elijah prophesies to Ahab that heavy rain is coming and the drought will be broken. Let's pick it up at verse 41. Elijah says to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of the heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed up to the top of Mount Carmel. He bent down to the ground. He put his face between his knees And he said to his servant, go and look toward the sea. And so the servant went up and he looked toward the sea, looking for clouds in the distance that this drought would be broken. And he looks out to the sea and there's nothing out there. And so he comes back. He comes back to Elijah. You see, Elijah saw what was coming. He saw and he heard the rain. The servant went and what does he say when he comes back? In verse 43, he says, there's nothing there. See, what Elijah had already seen and heard, the servant can't see or hear it. And so he sends him off another seven times. And he goes off six times and he he looks out and there's nothing there. And it's a bit awkward when you come back the second time. When it's the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, it becomes really awkward. This reminds me of what it's like to be a St Kilda supporter. At the start of every year, you go, this could be the year. (laughs) No, next year, next year. This could be the year. Never. It's frustrating and it's awkward. And I think this is how the servant felt at probably a higher spiritual level than St Kilda. But he went off and he kept coming back time and time again. And Elijah said, go back a seventh time. And he goes and he looks. And in the distance, he sees a cloud about the size of a man's fist. And he comes back and he says, there's a cloud the size of a man's fist coming up from the sea. Elijah has seen enough. It says, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah like Superman, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Elijah prophetically heard and saw what others couldn't hear and see. You know, planning a church in 2017 is the definition of insanity for many people. In an increasingly secular post-Christian world, why on earth do we need churches with all their abuse and hypocrisy and failings over many years? People will say that they're outdated, old-fashioned, and that all religions should be banned. And so the question is, what good could a church ever do in a culture that doesn't want or need them? 
People just can't see any use for churches. Planting a church is the equivalent of investing a million dollars into a video shop. There's no demand. They're going out of business. They're closing down. No one needs or wants them anymore. And this is what people think about churches. But the power of vision is this, that God helps us to see what other people can't see. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets like Elijah at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. God has spoken to us through his son. Jesus on the cross died in our place, the place of sinners, and he tells us he is the only hope for this world. And when we're saved, that same risen son tells us what our mission is. It's to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. That same son says, I tell you, open your eyes. That's vision. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Twelve months ago, a guy called Mike walked into our church for the first time, an atheist. He walked out a Christian. Ashley, Michael, Helen, Judy, others, they came into this church. They weren't in relationship with Christ. And I know some of their stories, and perhaps we would have looked at them back then and thought they're not at all interested in God. But God was interested in them. And they've come to Christ, and they're walking in relationship with him. And I remember before the first service ever at Follow Baptist Church, I remember standing in the shower, and God, disturbing visual, don't visualize it, but I was standing in the shower, (laughs) and God gave me a vision of many people that at that time were far away from God heading towards an eternity separated from him. And God said, when you plant this church, there'll be many of those people that will come back to the Lord. And those people I just mentioned are some of those people that I saw in the shower two years before they walked into this church, before they even knew that God was after them. God was after them. And there's so many more in our community that God wants to save. Elijah saw the cloud before it came. In a world that says we don't need churches, is in a world that cannot see God, we need to be the people that see what others can't see. Instead of seeing a disinterested, apathetic, antagonistic world, through the eyes of faith, we need to open our eyes and see the fields as white and ready for harvest. As we step out obediently in faith, we need to confidently trust God that as we go and sow, that he will do what only he can do, that he will grow the gospel in people's hearts. And the time will come when we will reap an eternal harvest and that makes what we are doing the, most, uh, the greatest privileged and the most amazing mission on the planet. This is our vision, that Jesus would be lifted high over this region and beyond and that many people would come to know him. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you've done for us, that while we were still sinners, not looking for you, in fact, actively running away from you, You died for us. Well, what an awesome thing that is to know that we can be saved, that we can be forgiven, and that in you we can have the hope of eternal life. Lord, I thank you for the story of Elijah today, that he was a man who stood on God's word. I pray when we think about our vision that we would continue to remain strong in your word, that we would stand on it even if everyone else abandons it. We'll be a group of people that stand and put our faith in your word. We thank you, Lord, that he was a man that did incredible things. He was a man that saw what others couldn't see. 
But most of all, he was a man that remembered who you are. Well, as we look forward into the future, may we not be consumed by the obstacles and the circumstances of our lives, but may we lift our eyes and focus our attention on you. And I pray that those things will start to shrink. And I pray that we get into the future and we look back and we go, wow, God is good. He's done things that we can only call supernatural. So Lord, I pray that we will be a group of people that continue to put our faith in you. Just before I close the service today, I want to talk to anyone here this morning that may not be in a relationship with Jesus. As I said before, you may not be interested in him, but he's interested in you. And today, it may not be any accident that you're here today and that you're hearing my voice and you're hearing God's word. And perhaps today, God's got you here because he wants you to encounter Christ, to come to that point where you accept him as your Lord and Saviour. That the confidence that most people in this room have that you can leave this room having as well. That you are forgiven regardless of where you've been or what you've done. And that you can have a hope for the future that's beyond any circumstances this world has to offer. But it's something and a hope that's eternal. And so while no one's looking around, every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I don't do this every week, but I want to give an opportunity today to anyone here that doesn't know Jesus. And today I want to ask you, if you want to come to know him and accept him as your Lord and Saviour, just to lift your hands and say, Luke, that's me. Today I want to put my faith in him. As I said, over the last um, couple of years, there's been several people that have done this, and it's a life-changing encounter. So I don't want to prolong it today, but is there anyone here today that says, yes, Luke, I want to put my faith in Christ? Lord, I trust that everyone here knows you today, Lord. If they don't, and they're hearing this today, Lord, I pray that you continue to reveal yourself to them, that they would come to know you in a life-changing way. Thank you for today. Thank you for the week to come, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to be people on mission as we go, to stand on your word, to share the gospel, to see people's lives changed. And we pray it in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.